The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, your word tells us that you are good, that your nature is one of steadfast love and mercy and grace and kindness. Now we we know that this is a fallen world covered with sin and we live in it. And so we have these two realities, a, a fallen world with sin and a God who is full of grace and his, is good towards us, His people. And so it's possible that this morning, Lord, we might wrestle with that, that some here, some men, some women, some teenagers, boys and girls, young ages, might wrestle with some of these things and, and have a hard time putting them together. And I pray, Lord, where there is hurt and pain throughout this room this morning, Address it and touch it and in a way now heal it, I ask. I don't really even know what I'm praying about, but you do. And I ask that you would work now in this moment, that you would lead us, if there is sin that we need to confess, that you would lead us in confession of that. If there is sorrow that we need to come to you and ask you to bear, then lead us to do that. Where there are wounds that need to be bound up, would you bind? Would you secure us and, and, and save us in this way, Lord? Show your kindness and your mercy to your people. Where there are women and maybe even girls who deal with the issue of motherhood in different ways than joyous celebration, would you touch them and heal them? and help them. Where there are couples who will listen to this issue about marital intimacy with, with pain, will you, will you heal? Where there are some here who, who can't have what they, what they want in either of these areas, what seems right and desirable to them, they, but they can't have it at least now, remind them that you are enough and make that real, not just language. So, Father, I pray that you would minister to your people. That your spirit would move and wisely address individuals here and now and prepare us now for your word and give us a joyful ability to worship over it. To worship you at whom it points. Give clarity to what I'm going to say. May those words that come out of my mouth be yours and may they... May they rest on your people for good. We look to you, Father. We look to you, Son, our Bridegroom. We look to you, Spirit, the, the lover who lives within us. And we say, come now and bless your people. And I pray this in the name of Jesus is good. Amen. As we turn our attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning, we, we come to a new section in the book of, 
of 1 Corinthians, related, as always, related to what has come before, but a little bit different. Paul has been interacting with various issues in the church at Corinth, and he's heard about them through a delegation that was sent to him. And he's talked about various things he's heard, but we also know that, that this delegation came carrying a letter. There were some specific things the church as a whole wrote to the church, wrote, wrote to Paul to ask. And now Paul's going to turn to that letter and address the issues raised by them. So we're going to see this morning and, and in the following weeks and months, various times now concerning this and that, things they'd written about. So from here on for a bit, the, the agenda of the letter is is kind of set by the Corinthian church as they ask Paul things. He's going to address things in probably in categories, putting things together. And this morning we're going to see that, that we're going to begin a, a whole chapter that is in one way or another about marriage and singleness. That's kind of the, the big picture. And if you look at all of chapter 7, you'll see various headings. You probably have something over today's passage 7 verse 1, principles for marriage. And then if you look to the end, you have the unmarried and the widowed, probably some heading like that. So it's you know, kind of the opposite. But it's worth noting the context in which over the next several weeks we're going to be talking about marriage and singleness. Because if you look at your Bible again, right in the middle, you have live as you are called. And if you look through that section, you notice you know, there's actually a, a bigger issue than just marriage that Paul's getting at here. Look at verse 17. Paul says, you have a, essentially, you have a life to live that God has assigned you. Live that life. Don't try to jump the tracks and go live a different life now that you're a Christian. Seems the issue that he was facing here in Corinth that they'd written to him about was something along the lines of, now that we're Christians, you recall from chapter 4 where he, they talked about, you know, now we reign as kings. They had this idea of already... Something great and marvelous, a change has happened. And it seems that there was a tendency in, in the church there to say essentially something like, I'm a king, I'm saved, the end's coming, so it really doesn't matter if I'm on time to work. It's all going to burn anyway, who cares? And he's saying, well, hold on a second. No, no, you have a life that you're called to that you need to live. Not that you can't change it in allowable ways. Verse 21 talks about that. You can pursue a change in life, but, but you have a life that you're called to. Live it. And in that context, he comes to marriage. We this morning are going to find essentially what he's saying is you have, if you're married, you have been assigned by the Lord a life of marriage. Don't try to change that. Live it out fully, all that it entails. Some evidently were trying to change it. We're going to see that addressed in the very beginning of this section. So we're going to talk about marriage, and and it fits in with the last, with the end of chapter six. Sexual morality comes up again. The, the related ideas. That's why he's kind of moved to this now. But as we do this, I need to again give another little, drop another little comment here. If you're single this morning. Let me encourage you to not check out. There, there are things for you here about God that you'll, you'll see about God and about His goodness, about His nature and character. And also, you must remember that if you're single, you are a part of a community. 
And what we're talking about is something that is, is God's Word to a, a community for a whole culture of which you, even single, are a part of. You will believe things. You will influence people. You will teach people. Sometimes audibly, sometimes just inadvertently. And we need, we the church, we need a, a culture shift in how we think about sex in marriage. Which includes you if you're single. I mean, maybe some, some who are single here will one day be married, and, and some won't. But all of us need to hear this, so don't check out, please. Keep tracking with me. We're going to look this morning at verses 1 to 9. I, I was going to read through the end of 16, but I think I'll just stop at 9, although it flows all the way through this. I'm just going to stop at 9, and, and uh, we'll give our attention to the first part of the chapter. So read with me 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 1 through 9. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, And likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. Corinthians 7. Verse 1 begins, I'm going to walk through the passage here and make sure that we understand a few things about it before we make some general observations. And verse 1, we note, begins with Paul bringing up this letter. And we can see right away how there is, there's a connection with what we saw last week. It's kind of the opposite extreme. Last week he was talking about sexual immorality and saying to flee from it. And it's as if Conceptually, some people are fleeing from sexual immorality and have fled all the way, way over there, all the way to, well, it's actually good for a man to not have sex at all with a woman at all. That's their, that's their line from their letter, which is why it's probably in quotes in your, in your text. Not just not with a woman who's not his wife, but period. That's the idea. And Paul replies, however, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, which he was just talking about, because of that, three parallel statements follow. And Paul is very careful to make them almost identical in each half of the parallel. There are three times, and and he's gone through great pains to make them very complementary. He's trying to emphasize the mutuality of marriage. This is not about gender. It's about marriage. Same for both genders. Three things that are all related. Verse 2, 
Each man should have his own wife and each wife her own husband. It's an imperative. It's a command. Have her. And you, have him. Which is not a command to get married. It's within a marriage. It is, it's a command that is an ongoing thing. You two are married. Have each other. I'm trying to be clear yet discreet. See what this is saying. It's a command. Have your spouse continually. Verse 3, same thing. Continuing, ongoing command again. Husbands, give. That's the command. Give to your wife her rights. The, the ESV adds conjugal. It just says right. What is due? What is, what is just? Give what is just due. And likewise, wife, give what is just due. This, this does not, careful, this does not go against all that he has said previously about us not claiming our own rights. This isn't saying, husband, get from your wife what is due you. It is saying, husband, give to your wife what is due her. Give, and then you, vice versa, give a command, which involves laying down your life. Why would you do that? Verse 4, and the NAS and the ESV do a good job with verse 4, and the NIV unfortunately flinches because it sounds so odd. Verse 4 is command. For, why do you give what's due? Because... The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, and the same vice versa. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body. It does not say the wife is not the only person who has authority over her body. The husband does also. It does not say that. You don't have authority over your own body. Your spouse does. That's hard. That's odd, isn't it? Boy, we are, if, any, if I'm boss of anything, it's my body, isn't it? No, it isn't. It isn't. And because it isn't, the next command, verse 5, another ongoing imperative, a third command in this passage. So stop depriving one another. The word actually is the same word used back in chapter 6, defraud. Which fits very well with the idea of giving what is due, what is right. To not do that is to defraud. That's just sophisticated theft. This is due to her. And when I withhold it, I'm robbing, defrauding. Stop doing that command. Well, so much for it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Paul says, no, it isn't. Assuming that that woman is your wife and that man is your husband, it's not good at all. It's fraud to not do so. And then he makes a concession. Not a command, as he says in verse 6. Commands have already come, three of them. Two and three in the beginning of five. So this is not a command. It's an exception you know, except perhaps 
by mutual agreement, you hear him qualifying this, except perhaps for a limited time, if the two of you were to agree together that both of yourselves would devote yourselves to prayer, probably referring to to a habit back in that day, which would be a good habit to continue today, but it was very common in the early church for people to withdraw for periods of fasting and prayer. So if that's what you both together have agreed to do, to withdraw from from physical life for for a period of fasting and prayer, okay, do that, but hurry back. As long as... Has it continued? That you... But then come together again. Yes, for a period, if you both agree, but then come together again. Sleep together regularly. That's a command. So, let's have none of this, the law of God being a bad thing. Okay? Obey the Bible. You know? This is so, this is so ironic, I think. But, there is something serious going on here. The sentence continues, so that Satan may not tempt you. There's something going on here. There is a danger around. So that Satan may not tempt you, which is where this all started back in verse 2, because of the temptation to sexual immorality. There is a threat in the room. In the middle of that, and in light of that threat, he lines up all these commands. Makes a real brief exception, but he's really emphasizing the commands. Because there's a danger. We talked about sexual morality last week, said something about why it is such a great danger. It is, it is very uniquely, verse 18 of chapter 6 talks about how uniquely sexual morality is a sin against my very body. It is a sin within me that grabs me and holds me and pulls me in a very different way than any other sin. It is a great danger. And so Paul is, under the inspiration of God, very clear, emphatic. Don't give any room to that. And one piece of it is come together regularly with your spouse. Verse 7, then he turns to himself and he says, in light of this great danger of sexual morality, I wish all were as I am. I know everybody isn't. Everybody has their own gift from God. One has been given by God one thing, one given by God another thing. But, but the place where I am, not just single, he is single, but he's single with a gift of singleness. We often say a gift of celibacy. He's given, he has been given by God a unique ability in his singleness as a gift from God. He has much less of a struggle with the temptation of sexual morality. God has assigned that to Paul, the life he has assigned to him. And he wishes that there were more people like him. Strategically, as he's going to say later in the chapter, you can get a lot done like this. But God has not given that gift to everybody. And if you find yourself single, burning with passion, then marry. Because that's what God intends to happen. That's the passage. An interesting passage, isn't it? I I really think that as we look at this passage, Heidi last night said, is there anything that I should know about what you're going to say tomorrow? (laughs) (laughs) No. 
but we really should think about this passage. And it's, it's, I'm going to try to be, you know, discreet, but it's very personal. And we should think of it as this is about me. This is not theology. This is about people, you, your spouse. And there should be a, a great sense of the goodness of God in this. This is a good thing under discussion here. So I, I think, let me try to sum it all up in, in one, one sentence here. What I think God's getting at in these verses, I, I'll put it like this. Marital intimacy is God's gift to help couples control themselves for God's glory. And to control yourself, I might mean more than you think by that. Marital intimacy is God's gift to help couples control themselves for God's glory. That's the main point I'm going to work towards now in, in two subpoints. I'm going to begin with the, the obvious commands of the passage. Put like this, when God assigns a life of marriage, it includes regular, mutual, sexual intimacy. When God assigns a life of marriage... It includes regular, mutual sexual intimacy. That's the point. And if you're married, you can know for certain that the Lord has assigned you a life of marriage for now. Those things go together. Now, next week, he's gonna, we're going to see he's going to talk about some very limited parameters in which that life of marriage could be changed. So it is possible. But right now, the point where you are right now, barring the ending of marriage, then you're married. And that means that part of God assigning that to you is He has assigned also to you a life that includes this sexual intimacy. How do we know? Well, it's commanded three times in the passage. It would be hard to be more clear. Have your own spouse. Give this right that is deserved to your spouse and stop depriving your spouse. That's the collection of commands. That's pretty clear. I want to elaborate on that. Before I do, I need to put in a qualification so that some of us can keep listening to the rest of this. Those are the commands, but I need to point out this qualification. Every command in the Bible exists in a context of the whole Bible. This is, this is important if you think about this. There's a broader context that always shapes any specific command. Think, for example, about Colossians 3.20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. That's a straightforward command. What if a dad tells his 15-year-old son to go slash somebody's tires or to commit a murder or a crime of some sort? Would we say he should do that? No. Why not? Because we know the broader biblical context within which that command sits. And we know that, that sort of thing would not please the Lord, but would in fact be sin. There is always a broader context that, that is around any particular command. Extremely clear commands even. They exist in a larger sphere. So, so bring that back. 
to our passage. What biblical ideas need to be included as a context for these really clear commands? Put it like this. Love of God and love of neighbor. You can sum up what God says. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. This fulfills the law. Put that around what I'm saying here. You can write it down if you want to. In your mind, put it around if you have to. Regular, mutual, sexual intimacy in the light of love of God and love of neighbor. That's what I'm talking about. Let me give a couple of specific examples. And the reason I do this is that some of these might point to some things some of us struggle with. My spouse comes to me and says, let's, let's obey this passage. But comes in a way, I think this is, maybe specific, it's going to be in a public place. It's going to be in some way, perhaps, offensive to others. What do I do? Love of God, love of neighbor around this. Is it going to be an offense to somebody else? Maybe you should say no. Or not yet. Let's wait. My spouse comes to me. Is there a possibility that this might produce a child that's intended to be used as a weapon? People do that. I'm not just grabbing something out of left field. People do that, you know. Is that love of God and love of neighbor? Should I say yes because the command says so? knowing what might or very likely will happen here. No, that's not love of God. That's not love of neighbor. Say no. Is there disease, illness, physical threat? Perhaps you should say no or not yet. Now, all this stuff gets really tricky because our hearts are deceitful. It's hard to weigh these things out. So maybe you need to pursue some godly counsel with somebody else in your particular situation. My point now is not to answer every single thing, but to point at enough specifics here that you can think through your situation. What does this command mean? How can I talk to somebody about how I would obey this command? Some of us have some very complicated situations. And I'm just dropping this in there. I want to be sensitive to that. Love of God and love of neighbor sits around and over it. Now, setting that aside and coming back. If you need to talk about about that more, come talk to me. But I'm setting that aside and I'm going to leave it now. We have here back at our observation, God assigns a life of marriage that includes regular, mutual sexual intimacy. What what does regular mean? Well, it doesn't say. There isn't a a number there, but there is a hint with the qualification. For a, a limited time, by mutual, you know, for a bit, but it leans towards hurry back. It would point us towards words like regular and frequent and away from words like infrequent and irregular. I, I don't know what that means. I would guess that hourly is too frequent and annually is too infrequent. (laughs) Somewhere in the middle. 
regular. <laughs> Mutual. And I say that because of the very careful and deliberate repetition of husband and wife in 2 and 3 and 4. The required agreement in verse 5. This, this is almost overkill. He loops back on this so many times in consecutive sentences. You've got to say, okay, you know, I get it. Why? Why? Paul is underlining something here for us. Why? Because he knows that as he says this, a number of people are reading it or sitting here listening to it and thinking, I see what Paul's doing. He's being very politically correct. Saying both men and women, this is really about men and we all know it. No, it isn't. Paul underlines this. If he would add in, PC does not exist in my day. What Paul would say. I'm not in the least bit concerned to be politically correct and to properly include both genders. I'm saying again and again, men and women, husband and wife, because I mean both. Really, honestly. There is both, there are both genders, both spouses included in it. It is very mutual in Paul's mind what he's talking about here. And not just because, well, you know, there are some women that have sex drives just as powerful as some men. That's not what he's talking about. You've got to think much bigger about sexuality. Paul the Bible, God says again and again that both of you need the whole experience of marital togetherness. Sexual intimacy. Both of you need all of it. I'm commanding both of you, have your spouse. Repeatedly, don't stop. Husbands and wives, this is a unique and necessary piece of marriage. Think about this. Help us understand why. Think about this. And understand, I'm giving an example here that I'm not saying is a good idea. Just consider the possibility of a male-female friendship that starts from a very young age and this man and this woman, they grow together over time. They grow to know each other and understand how each other ticks. They are just the best of friends. They share a whole lot in common. They even decided over time to, to meld their financial status. They hang out together. They go eat together a lot. They work together. They're on the same softball team. They go on walks all the time. Maybe even eventually they decide to share an apartment because, hey, it would save expenses. I'm not saying it's a good idea. That would be sinful. I'm be clear about that. But they, they do that, and, and they're, they're just so melded, but at the end of the day, it's a two-bedroom apartment. He goes there, she goes there. And never the two meet. Everybody knows that at the end of the day, at the very bottom level, those two people are not as fully connected as they could be. They are not as fully acquainted and as 
completely intimate with one another as they could be because they have decided to draw a line and say, past this, I'm me and you're you. Past this, I am autonomous and you have no rights. Sex in marriage erases that last final line. And only when it does that does it make marriage, the whole thing, an accurate, or as accurate as we can be in this life, an accurate picture of the thing at which it was intended to point. The union of Christ the bride to His bridegroom, the church. Because there is no final line between us and Christ. Past this point, I am autonomous. You have no rights. That line does not exist between us and Him. This is a very unique and necessary piece of marriage. Its presence within the covenant of marriage is what helps testify to the great reality of our union with Christ. Listen to this. The intimacy and vulnerability and satisfaction and joy and delight and pleasure found when you rest as one in the arms of your lover. Am I talking about sex between the spouse or you and Jesus? Yes. Both categories, all of those words are used. Think about that. In your presence is pleasure forevermore. And we use that very same word in this other context. We have an idea of what pleasure forevermore might be like because we have a context for it. We are physical beings and we don't just have ideas expressed to us. He made us physical people and then created a context in which we can reach down and grab the dirt. Remember last week? And grip it in our hands and smell it and know. This intimacy is good for both of you as it points towards something else. Yes, it does. And you can preach another sermon about this and you can read lots of books about ways that it is good for us kind of in the physical realm, how it enhances our relationship with one another. That's true too. But more than that, more than that, it's good and necessary for both of you because of what it teaches and what it models, points to. Not just an idea, but it becomes tangible. God intends that marriage include that and to refrain from that. To withhold it from the other is to deny for that other not just the physical pluses, but it's to deny from that other the context in which that other can see what it is like to be given to to be blessed, to be naked and not ashamed before one. That phrase is critical in the Bible. Naked and not ashamed in the garden before sin. That is what people created very good in the image of God. People before each other, people before God. That's what it was like. 
And you experience a little bit of that now. And to withhold is to deny. I'm not going to give you that experience. I'm not going to show you what it's like to be given to and blessed, naked and not ashamed. No. Both. It is a mutual thing. Now, there are differences about how we experience particular pieces of the whole picture. But the whole picture is what we need to think about. Regular and mutual. And I'm going to refrain from illustrating it at this point and just tell you to obey it. Go apply it. Most of us probably, I think probably most of us have a response to that, that uh, applying this, experiencing this, that would be a good thing, I think. But not all of us. There are other thoughts that run around in, in, our, in our minds. Some of them related to why, and I want to expand a little more by moving into the second observation. This goes then to the purpose. Marital sexual intimacy is a gift from God in the fight against sin. And this is where I'm getting after the control ourselves. It's a gift from God in the fight against sin. Not a gift He gives to all. Verse 7 points out that He doesn't give the same gift to everybody, but For those of us who are married, again, I'm speaking of the hour. I'm speaking as if I'm talking to married people. Initially, we need to consider the sin of sexual immorality because it's specifically here in this passage. Verses 2, 5, and 9 all make the same point. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, a sin that we should be stridently fighting to avoid, God has done something good in giving us each other, spouses. If this sexual passion is a fire, it talks about verse 9, a flame burning with a passion. If it's a fire, it's as if God is saying, and I have given you a fireplace. Go put the fire in the fireplace and stoke it. And no danger, but actually blessing will come from it. It will heat the whole house. which may strike you as rather unromantic. I'm an outlet. I'm a remedy for my spouse's sexual temptation. I want to be wanted for me because I'm desirable. I want, I want that person to want me for me. Well, that's fine too, but a wise spouse understands this text and applies it. It's, it's not wrong to be wanted for you, but there's something here. A husband comes home from work and says to his wife, Man, first day of spring, and I'm telling you, every woman at the office, and I think every woman at the restaurant I went to for lunch, and every jogger along the road on the way home, nobody's wearing anything. Is that true or not? Sure seems like that to me. 
I'm saying nobody's wearing anything. What is going on? And a wife could say, think in her mind, what is going on with him? Is he looking at other women? Where's his mind been? Or a wise wife would think, he fights, I'm his ally. Come here. (laughs) Serious. Serious. Is that romantic? I don't know. I suppose it could be. But But carefully, let's not try to outsmart God here. That is clear from this passage. Because of the temptation of sexual morality, regularly have your spouse. That's where the whole thing starts. And at the end, if you have to, by mutual, I mean, maybe a little bit go apart, but hurry back so that Satan himself will not find ground to plant a seed in. Now, is this foolproof? Of course not. Of course it's not foolproof. There's no absolute here. But there's wisdom here, and a wise wife, a wise husband understands there are things that draw us, both genders, there are things that draw us elsewhere, and a lot of them can be cut off at, at the surface by a regular interaction of this sort. Foolproof? No. Helpful? Absolutely. The Bible says so. And God has graciously, wisely given us this gift to help us in our fight against that sin. Obey the Bible. But we need to keep thinking about this because there's another sin that is here. And it comes out as we think about what is the main problem being confronted here in this passage? The main problem is not actually the sexual morality. The main problem is what he commands against, which is in response to the question that they raised. The main problem is spouses doing this and thinking that's okay. The main problem is spouses doing this and thinking, hey, I'm in charge of me. I can do with me whatever I want to do with me, and I don't want to do that with you. So, no, for for whatever reason. That's the main problem. And commonly, uh, commonly, the heart in that is significantly, significantly wrong. This is one of these things where if you think about a physical body, if you take your your physical temperature, 98.6, and your physical temperature comes out, it could be right, and you could still have major problems. You could be bleeding out of several, several holes and, and you have the right temperature. You could still have major problems. But if you have the wrong temperature, that tells you you have a problem. I'm a medical doctor, but that's what I understand. <laughs> that there, there's something there that it, it doesn't... The, a good reading doesn't necessarily say everything's right, but a bad reading says something's wrong. This is one of those areas, a bad reading on the sex front says something's wrong. A good reading does not mean everything's right. 
But a bad reading says somewhere in there, there is some distance. Somewhere in there, there is a line that has been drawn. Beyond this, you have no rights. I am me over here and I will autonomously decide. Or I give to you because I have to, grudgingly, angrily. That would be a bad reading also. A bad reading on this says something's wrong and very often it points at the heart. I have known couples, I mean most of us read this and say this, this is good news, I'm glad the Bible says this. I have, I have known couples that have gone weeks, months, multiple years in disobedience to this. And fundamentally it is because, if I were to put it in a sentence, you hurt or offended me and I don't want anything to do with you, certainly not that. That is out there. That is probably out here. And what this tells you, what this points out to you, how this gift from God jumps right in front of you and can help you in your control of yourself, your self-control, can help you to walk back towards Him. What it points out to you is how hard your heart is. Yeah, maybe your spouse did X, Y, and Z. It's not about your spouse. The commands are to you. If it was about a spouse, if it was about me giving myself to my spouse, when my spouse has proved him or herself worthy, the model it would be pointing at is Jesus giving himself to me when I prove myself worthy. That is not the gospel. The whole point of this is to highlight something very unique and marvelous. That one gives, that one pours out oneself even when the other is unworthy. That one loves, not just grudgingly because I have to, but one loves and gives even when the other is unworthy. And if you find yourself days, weeks, months, years into not doing this, it should point out to you, oh, there's something wrong with your heart. It should point out to you, I am driven by, I am focused on how things are going for me. And I live then out of that. I'm driven by, I'm controlled by A self-focus that says, I will only give in the face of respect and honor and love and admiration. I will not lay down my life, die to myself and surrender to the will of God in the love of other. Oh, my heart is hard. You see what I'm saying here? Do you see what I'm saying here? Because this applies to people who for years have held off and it, it applies to me sometimes daily. There's a barrier that comes up sometimes. And when the barrier's there, sometimes it creeps into the marriage bed. That barrier. I will not give myself to you. Because what I'm feeling from you is something that is offensive to me. And I only love when loved. When it points that out to me, I am struck Stricken to the heart. Pierced, let's say. 
Does it, does it show itself to you like that? It should. Oh, I, I pray that it, it, it shows something to you. Your heart is unwilling to die to yourself. Oh, you need Christ. You need Christ to forgive you of that because that is, oh, just revealed to you in the moment. Your hardness, you need Christ for that. And you need Christ also then, not just to forgive you, but to change you. To make you someone able to die to yourself and give happily and wholly and freely to bless the unlovely one right here next to you by the will of God. You need to forgive you and to change you and you also need Him to be the support, the strong, sure, good lover of your soul when that one isn't. The one who will never leave you and forsake you when that one does. To bear your sorrows and to fill your heart when your spouse doesn't. You need Christ for that. And He is available to you. So come to Him. How gracious He is to assign you a life of marriage with its regular mutual sexual intimacy requirement. What a blessing that is. What a blessing it is in that it reveals to you your sin and helps you to control yourself in turning back to Him as you need Him to lay down your life in front of your spouse. God is good to His people. He's good to you. Trust Him and obey the Bible regularly. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.